There's a lot of work in giving these Dharma talks. <laughs> you got to set your rig up. Tonight I'd like to talk a little bit about the Buddha's own life, his own biography, to form the first step of a talk that's actually going to be on dukkha. So this is how the Buddha described how he was raised. I was delicate, most delicate, supremely delicate, Lily ponds were made for me at my father's house solely for my benefit. Blue lily flowered in one, white lilies in another, red lilies in a third. I used no sandalwood that was not from Benares. My turban, tunic, lower garment, and cloak were all made of Benares cloth. A white sunshade was held over me day and night so that no cold or heat or dust or grit or dew might inconvenience me. I had three palaces, one for the winter, one for the summer, and one for the rains. In the rains palace, I was entertained by minstrels with no men among them. For the four months of the rains, I never went down to the lower palace. Though meals of broken rice with lentil soup are given to the servants and retainers in other people's houses. In my father's house, white rice and meat was given to them. So he's pointing to his early experience and the fact that it was cush. <laughs> Very comfortable. And in fact, this was part of his father's strategy to keep him from awakening to his role as a bodhisattva. So the story goes that when the Buddha was a young person just born, a holy man who was a seer predicted that the child would become one of two types of beings. He would either become a world conqueror, a world ruler, or he would become a bodhisattva and the Buddha. And the father had a very clear preference for which version he liked. And so he thought he would uh, distract him from things that might cause him to awaken to his choice to practice and practice and practice until he fully liberated his mind out of compassion for beings. So he was surrounded by luxury, surrounded by ease. Now we can assume there was a little bit more to this story though because the Buddha was also part of the warrior caste at the time. So I think we can assume that even though there was a lot of luxury there and there may have been uh, a sunshade over him day and night, he's probably somebody who could handle himself. He um, wouldn't be the person that was able to undertake practice in the way that he did and do the austerities that he did without having some very strong inner core. But nevertheless, there was some sensitivity there. And in the classic story, there's a talking about how the Buddha one day escaped from the palace, escaped from the palace with his charioteer and went out and saw three sites that greatly 
distressed him. So the story goes, he went out of the palace and he saw in sequence uh, an old man, a sick man, and uh, a dead person, and was very shocked by this. So this is what the Buddha says in his own words about those sights. And he was talking about his life before he left on the path of searching. Whilst I had such power and good fortune, yet I thought, when an untaught ordinary man who is subject to aging, not safe from aging, sees another who is aged, he is shocked, humiliated, and disgusted, for he forgets that he himself is no exception. But I too am subject to aging, not safe from aging, and so it cannot benefit me to be shocked, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another who is aged. When I considered this, the vanity of youth entirely left me. I thought, when an untaught ordinary man who is subject to sickness, not safe from sickness, sees another who is sick, he is shocked, humiliated, and disgusted, for he forgets that he himself is no exception. But I too am subject to sickness, not safe from sickness, and so it cannot benefit me to be shocked, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another who is sick. The vanity of health entirely left me. I thought, when an untaught ordinary man who is subject to death, not safe from death, sees another who is dead, he is shocked, humiliated, and disgusted, for he forgets that he himself is no exception. But I too am subject to death, not safe from death, and so it cannot benefit me to be shocked, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another who is dead. When I considered this, the vanity of life entirely left me. So this is his own telling of what he saw and how it affected him. And this touching into suffering, this touching into dukkha and his realization that this is a universal truth actually became the fuel, became the power of his taking up the path of seeking to understand in order to liberate his own mind and to liberate other beings who walked in his footsteps. And it's not so different for us in some kind of way. I would guess that for most folks here, there is something that led you to be in this kind of environment, doing this kind of practice, beyond just looking for a good time. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of extreme what you're doing here by mainstream standards, right? So for most of us, an understanding of suffering is at least part of our motivation. We're looking for an answer to distress. We're looking for uh, a remedy for dukkha. So let's talk about dukkha 
in the context of the Four Noble Truths. So if you know a basic understanding of the Buddhist teachings, you recognize that the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path are the foundational, are the fundamental teachings of the Buddha. And all of the other teachings that, that are given are extrapolations from them or different angles on the same teachings or connections of one teaching to another or instructions in cultivation or but they all the teachings relate to and refer back to the four noble truths and the eightfold path and the four noble truths are actually the buddha's high level overview of the whole thing the whole thing being what causes human beings distress and suffering and how to unbind it, how to reverse engineer the suffering that we experience as human beings. And so the first noble truth, you could say, is the Buddha's problem statement. So he says, there is dukkha. There is dukkha. And this dukkha is to be fully understood. That's what he asks us to do. There is unsatisfactoriness. There is suffering. This dukkha is to be fully understood. That's the task. So understanding dukkha is actually the first task to awakening. It's foundational to the other things that uh, flow. The second, third, and fourth steps on the Four Noble Truths. So sometimes the Buddha would actually say that he taught one thing and one thing only, which was dukkha and the path to the end of dukkha. So at his very first discourse after his awakening, this is what the the Buddha said to his group of uh, former friends, I say former friends because uh, when he gave up the extreme path of renunciation, unskillful renunciation, they really all turned their backs on him. But when he found them and began to explain to them what he'd figured out in finding the middle path, he said, now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of dukkha. Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, illness is dukkha, death is dukkha, union with that which is not is displeasing is dukkha, separation from what is pleasing is dukkha, not getting what one wants is dukkha. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are dukkha. Okay, we can see the point with what was mentioned before you got to the five aggregates, but that statement, the five aggregates subject to clinging are dukkha. He's basically saying the the five kinds of experiences, the five fields of experience from which we habitually uh, construct this idea of a, a fixed permanent self, these in and of themselves also are dukkha. Wow. That's a lot of dukkha. 
So if there's so much dukkha, maybe we should understand the word better and see what is actually being said. So a first thing to know is that the word dukkha does not translate well into English. There, um, an image is sometimes used to illustrate the principle that is being pointed to when the word dukkha and the inevitability of dukkha and conditioned things is being described. So the image that's used is that of a empty defective axle hole into which a wheel is fitted, right? The axle is the, you know, the straight piece and there's usually a hole in the middle of the wheel and the axle goes through it and then the wheel relies on on the axle, relies on the axle functioning well in order to roll smoothly. So this word dukkha is comprised of a prefix which means of do, which means difficult or bad, and then ka means empty. So this is suggesting that the thing doesn't roll very well. You know, the ride is lumpy, bumpy, jumpy, uncomfortable. Or an image that's a little bit more modern might be that of a shopping cart with one, a wacky wheel, right? And you're trying to push it, right? Or maybe you're in it, but you know what the problem is, right? It goes sideways on you. Or maybe it's a car with like bad tires and alignment and wheel bearings. It's just not steerable in the way you want it to be. And it's bouncy and jouncy at best. That's the image dukkha. Now, some of the particular words that are used to help build out an understanding of what dukkha means are suffering. That's the most common one-word translation that's given, but it doesn't really complete the picture. It doesn't really capture the word. Uh, Other words are not subject to control, painful, pain or painful, Uh, unsatisfactory, unstable, unreliable, stressful, distressful, dis-ease, frustration. Does anybody know that that saying, uh, there used to be a song, that comes from a a poem from, that that goes something like, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. Know that one? Okay. Well, you know, is it? I suppose it's true in the sense that whatever arises does do so because of the totality of causes and conditions and couldn't be any different than it is in the moment. On, on that level, it's true, it is perfect. 
Whatever is present in, in the moment is a perfect reflection of the totality of the causes and conditions that are present. Couldn't be anything other than it is in the immediate moment-to-moment arising. But from the perspective of, of us human beings, the perfect functioning of causation does not provide satisfaction or lasting happiness. So even though things might be manifesting as they must, there are serious design flaws in the scheme from our human perspective. Are there not? So, I mean, I know that if I was in charge of the universe, there would be some things altered. I mean, you know, you could start with the the old age sickness and death and (laughs) sorrow, lamentation and grief, you know. That's just kind of like a race, like the the top line dukkha. That's the human heart, right? If the ones we love we could always keep and they could always be well and we could always be well and we could never be parted and... Nobody had to die and nobody had to suffer and that's what our heart wants. But here we are in this universe where there's three kinds of dukkha. So let's talk about what I just referred to as the top line of dukkha. Dukkha dukkha. The dukkha of painful experiences. So here the meaning <clears throat> is, is uh, closest to, to what we usually think of as suffering. Painful experiences of the body and mind. You may have had one or two of these while you're here. <laughs> Old age, sickness, and death. We haven't had a death yet. But the other two, I think we can assume, are operative. There was that cold going around. Sorrow, lamentation, and grief. Memories of losses, past losses, present losses, anticipated losses. Other afflictive emotions coming from craving, aversion, delusion. Distress from experiencing that which is unloved or unwanted. The things that arise, the things that happen that are not what we want. Separation from what is loved. The loss of what we do want what we do hold dear. And this is the kind of dukkha that's clearest to see. I think everybody can understand dukkha dukkha. But then there are two other kinds of dukkha, which perhaps are not always as obvious. 
And the first of these is the dukkha of constant change. The par, paranama dukkha. The paranama dukkha. And this is dukkha of the changing nature of things. We've had a talk about anicca, about the impermanence of all conditioned things. And this particular type of dukkha is rooted in the experience of that truth. So you may have heard the teaching on the eight worldly winds, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, renown and disrepute. Nothing can be counted on to last or to provide lasting satisfaction because everything is impermanent and conditionally arisen. So as you may have noticed, a steady state of preferred conditions is not possible. How many times have we had the experience of trying in meditation to get something to happen or to get something back that happened yesterday, but it's not happening now. We cannot keep what we love from going away, nor can we keep what we dislike from happening. Oh, those damn thoughts are back again. The thoughts, the thoughts, the thoughts, the thoughts, the thoughts. Shut up, shut up, shut up. A thought, a thought, a thought, a thought. Shut up, shut up. Right? So there's a frustration at not getting what we want. Things are constantly arising and passing away due to their nature, not to our wishes. So this goes to the fact that what arises arises dependently due to causes and conditions. It's not doesn't have inherent self-existence. And because of that all compound things, meaning things that arise out of causes and conditions, are impermanent. This means that whatever has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. And we can't prevent this from happening. There's no master control we can operate. We can't turn it to, I like it that way, and keep it there. So therefore, things are unreliable, incapable of providing lasting satisfaction due to their conditioned instability. And this is true even with things that are pleasant, even things that have pleasant Vedana associated with them. So with the arising of something that has pleasant Vedana, we don't necessarily think of that as dukkha, right? Because it's pleasant. So in, in in real time, if the mind is in a non-grasping relationship to pleasant Vedana, we wouldn't say that we're suffering as we might be with an experience of dukkha dukkha. But we can say that even the arising of pleasant experience, experience that has pleasant Vedana, is still dukkha in that it cannot provide lasting satisfaction because it's going to go away. So that's one of the reasons why if you look at the teaching of the three characteristics, 
the three universal characteristics of all things which uh, arise. You'll see Anicca is the first, Dukkha is the second, and the third is not-self. So the third type of dukkha is Sankara dukkha, the dukkha of conditioned existence. Sankara. Fabrication. So Joseph's take on this is that this describes the burdensomeness of conditioned existence. There's, there's a way in which being in this realm of conditionality requires a lot of work. So in my words, I would say, what we need to do because things are conditioned and unstable just to keep the wobbly cart on the bumpy road. And we're doing things all the time, all the time. So, for example, so we have to find food for the body because we need to eat. So we have a body, now we have to care for the body. We have to get food for the body. We need to prepare food and then clean up from the preparing. We need to brush our teeth. To brush our teeth, we need a toothbrush. To get a toothbrush, we need money. To get money, we need a job. To get a job, we need an education. To get to work, we need a car. To run the car, we need fuel. Right? Things are not so simple. Even simple things. There's a whole web of associated things that are involved in doing even simple things. The burdensomeness of conditioned existence. You know, it's a lot of work to keep things going, even on a basic level. It takes effort to overcome the system's tendency towards entropy. You know, if we don't do anything, it all just sort of rolls downhill very rapidly. So much effort is necessary to keep things going in the right direction. So those are the three main categories of dukkha. And I framed it mostly on an individual level when I talked about those. And that's generally how it's taught. It's generally taught in individual terms. But I wanted to say something about dukkha on the more collective level, or dukkha as it relates to larger systems. So it's important to realize that our individually experienced dukkha can also arise due to collective actions and non-actions. Sometimes dukkha arises as present experience flowing from the results of past actions and events in which one was not a volitional participant. So, Here's an example. For instance, a person might suffer individually due to climate change. 
There might be painful experiences of the body and mind, uh, injuries of various types coming from uh, extreme weather like a hurricane arising out of carbon effects due to global warming. We don't individually control the climate, yet we're still affected by it. So we individually may choose to live a a low-impact life, yet still have our society and the world changed due to carbon emissions in a way that causes ongoing dukkha in our individual and and, uh, family and collective lives. So in the same way, for instance, the effects of racism can be individually and collectively experienced. You could say dukkha could arise in interpersonal relationships due, due to ill intent or the unskillfulness of others. Dukkha could arise due to structural, stru- structural disadvantages and obstacles that have deep and broad historic roots. Dukkha can arise due to the implicit bias of others or due to their conscious prejudice. But in any case, dukkha is experienced individually and collectively. There's no capacity to turn back the clock and undo the roots of the current conditions. This is a deeply fabricated dukkha arising out of multiple causes. So, of course thinking about things on this, this collective level, this social level, it is possible to work now in the present as skillfully as possible to meet the current experiences with wisdom and compassion. To try to bring a clear and balanced and meta-powered mind so we can intentionally put into motion new causes and conditions which will result in change eventually. But you can see the fabricated nature of this particular dukkha in that it takes strong and sustained effort to shape the future skillfully and deliberatively. Social movements must be continually renewed or their energy dissipates, runs down. And so results might not be seen in the short run, even when effort is being made. And you can see the complexity of addressing that kind of dukkha. There's a woman named Patrice Cullors, who's one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, and she really points to how interwoven some of these deep, Uh, social injustices and wounds really are. She says, I believe this work with Black Lives Matters is healing work. It's not just policy. You can't policy your racism away. So how does the practice path support us in addressing dukkha in working with it directly. There's the first noble truth, which is the truth of dukkha. And then in the Buddhist system of explanation, the second noble truth locates the cause of dukkha. He says it's craving born from delusion. In other words, it's not a causal. 
It doesn't come out of nowhere. It's causal. There are ca- there's a cause here. And he, the third noble truth says that abandonment of craving is the end of dukkha. And the fourth noble truth describes the way leading to the end of dukkha, which is basically the Eightfold Path. So if we take the second noble truth at its face value, the cause of dukkha is craving born from delusion, then that gives us a really big clue that in addressing dukkha, you have to address delusion because it's the the root from which craving flows. So we're all here on a delusion ending and craving abandoning path. That's what you're doing. You may want be wondering at this point what you are actually doing. But. So we're all here practicing the uh, eightfold path within the context of the Four Noble Truths. So we're trying to directly address the delusion which causes what you might consider to be the discretionary human suffering. Okay, so here's a question that I think is a very fair one, which is, how does one address and overcome old age, sickness, and death, a very obvious form of dukkha dukkha? So a classical answer to that question would be old age, sickness, and death are caused by birth. So if we fully liberate the mind, we are no longer subject to birth and rebirth. So by becoming an arhat, we can avoid all forms of dukkha. Now, that's a pretty high bar. That's a... a, That's a a lot of work to avoid uh, a rebirth that many of us don't believe is going to be happening anyway. (laughs) (laughs) But perhaps there's another way to understand this, uh, another way to hold it, which is perhaps one way of addressing the dukkha of old age, sickness, and death is by coming to know directly and for ourself that there is no actual self which ages, sickens, and dies. So that's a pointing to an understanding or an insight into not-self, which has the capacity, when known experientially on a very deep level, of upending some of our assumptions about what's actually going on with old age, sickness, and death. But in looking to the second noble truth, we can see what causes what we consider to be discretionary human suffering. And that is craving born from ignorance. So we can work towards clear seeing, understanding, in order to remedy the delusion from which craving flows. And this is the necessary thing in order to break the chain of the clinging and craving 
also known as suffering, which flows from the delusion. So this is what Bhikkhu Bodhi says about the process of cutting off the causes of suffering. How does one go about eliminating ignorance, avijja? The answer follows clearly from the nature of the adversary. Since ignorance is a state of not knowing things as they really are, what is needed is knowledge of things as they really are. Not merely conceptual knowledge, knowledge as idea, but perceptual knowledge, a knowing which is seeing. This kind of knowing is called panya wisdom. Wisdom helps correct the distorting work of ignorance. It enables us to grasp things as they are in actuality directly and immediately, free from the screen of ideas, views, and assumptions our mind ordinarily set up between ourselves and the real. There's an understanding that the kind of ignorance that's being talked about is not just that we're not seeing things clearly, it's that we have an active and activated, unperceived, entirely wrong idea about what's actually going on. So it's not just an informational void, it's actually a misunderstanding at a very deep level of how things are. So he continues on, how is wisdom to be acquired? Wisdom cannot be gained by mere learning, by gathering and accumulating a a battery of facts. Wisdom can be cultivated coming into being through a set of conditions, conditions that we have the power to develop. These conditions are actually mental factors, components of consciousness, which fit together into a systematic structure that can be called a path. And he's referring here to the Eightfold Path leading to a goal. So what what is this set of conditions that he's talking about? Conditions that we have the power to develop. There's a lot that we can read into that, but fundamentally he's talking about bhavana. He's talking about this whole process that we're doing here of the cultivation of the heart and mind, of training attention to rest with immediate experience, with mindful awareness, knowing how things are moment to moment. Cutting through in that kind of way, the smokescreen, the cloud, the papancha, the views, the opinions, the ideas, the preferences, and all the rest about what experience should be happening and going again and again in real time to the actual experience of what is happening right now, what is happening right now, what is happening right now, just as it is, Training the, the mind to, to recognize its experience in its m- most fundamental, most simple level of arising. So 
almost as if we're saying to ourselves, now what is ha- what's happening? Now what's happening? Now what's happening? Now what's happening? Now what's happening? Sensations, sensations. Asking and requiring the body-mind system to learn to attend in that kind of way, in an immediate and ongoing way. So, even if the mind isn't fully liberated, even if we're not an arhat, I'm just guessing, even if we aren't, we can learn to relate to experience with wisdom so that we don't suffer from the second arrow. There's the experience of what is difficult. There is the experience of what is painful. There is the experience of what is not preferred. There is the experience of the disappearance of what is preferred. There is the experience of the disappearance of what is beloved. That's dukkha enough. If the, if the mind can learn not to add actual suffering to the experience of what might be difficult and unpleasant, that's a huge unbinding of suffering. So, if we learn how to sustain mindfulness in relationship to pleasant and unpleasant and neither pleasant nor unpleasant experience, the mind starts to see things as they really are. A mind that is attending to things in real time does not have the space to spin out and disconnect. With sustained attention, the mind learns to rest with things as they are. So this process, when we start to be able to do it even a little bit, helps us to understand how not to add suffering to difficult and unpleasant experiences by reacting aversively. We learn not to make pleasant experiences into suffering by clinging to them. And we don't go into disconnection when there's a more neutral feeling tone to things. So instead, the heart and mind uh, takes the seat. I kind of like like that, that phrase, takes the seat in the middle of it all and learns how to sustain a kind of wise attention with wise view and wise understanding supporting it. So from this, then our own intrinsic wisdom arises, which is able to understand experience wisely and with compassion. And this is really the path that leads to the reduction and eventually the elimination of what you might call discretionary human suffering. So it's very much tied into what you're actually doing here. Asking the mind, 
to practice just feeling the sensations in the feet when walking, just to know hearing when hearing, just to know an emotion in the body, just to know a thought as a thought in real time. This whole process of of pulling the mind away from being lost in ideas about how things should be, could be, must be, want to be, got to be, the way the mind mixes up the past and the future and the present and it all turns into one big confusing gob of something that seems overwhelming and burdensome. So in, in a certain kind of way, the process of the mind liberating itself has to do with returning or perhaps finding for the first time a kind of simplicity, a kind of non-doing that supports the mind in settling and clarifying its perception, in allowing for intuitive understanding to arise, which reshapes the whole understanding of what's actually going on in a way that's very beneficial to our heart and mind. So thus we end our, our evening's tour through dukkha. So you're now at the stage where you've, you've broken through or you are breaking through, willingly or unwillingly, our universal human desire to have a universe that that we can fix to give us what we want. But it, it is unfolding as it should. So how, how can we find our own way into a certain kind of harmony with it that does not bring us into conflict with the lawfulness of immediate arising? So this is... Um, the learning of of the path, of how to engage in this world of conditionality which we don't control, but which we can, through wisdom and, and good practice, actually get on the upside of. We can actually get on the upside of conditionality to be able to use the lawfulness of how things unfold in a way that benefits us, that helps support the liberation of our own heart and mind. And that very description of how to do that is what the Buddha talks about in the Eightfold Path and is what you're practicing here. So may we be willing to let go of our attachment to immediate control in the interest of allowing the arising of new understanding.
So thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.